Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley coming up on today's episode it's a real treat today Uh, We pay tribute to Sir David Butler, who's died at the age of 98. He's basically the man who invented the swingometer, really defined election science as we know it today. If you've ever watched election night on TV or radio, it's basically all been shaped by David Butler. So we've got a cracking tribute to him featuring Michael Crick, Jeremy Vine, Peter Snow, David Dimbleby and Jane Green. It's a it's a treat. You're going to want to tell your friends. In fact, if you want to watch uh, some of them uh, talking to me, we put up a lovely uh, video with lots of archive on it. It's on the Times Radio YouTube channel as well. Uh, that's coming up in just a moment. Before that, it's time for our columnists. The columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight, and James Marriott on Times Radio. Ah, oh, it's Thursday. Love it. So we can say good morning to India Knight. Good morning. Good morning. And good morning to James Marriott. Good morning, James. Good morning. Uh, so um, let's start with his story on the on the front of the time. Well, it's on front of the lots of the papers today. Nurses to strike within weeks. NHS facing disruption on a historic scale this winter as nurses staged the first national strike in a row over pay. And I'm just quite keen just to really to because one of those things. How would you sort of feel about it? Uh, should nurses get the pay with demand? Was it 15 percent that they're looking for? Uh, 17.6 percent uh, they're looking for. And if not, should they be allowed to go on strike? And then the huge impact they're going to have on, you know, waiting lists in the NHS in, in, in trouble is, is India, first of all. What do, you, what do you think about this? Well, I think nurses ought to be paid more. I've thought that all my adult life, really. Um, but I also think the idea of nurses striking is really alarming. Um, so, you know, in an ideal world, um, there would be negotiations. I think 70, I think I heard... Wes Streeting, the um, shadow health secretary, say somewhere yesterday that seven that even uh, he thought that seventeen point six was a 
an unattainable um, was just too much. There just wasn't the money. Um, but, you know, it's a question of negotiation. I mean, it, it, maybe they could have a smaller pay rise and that would avert the strike. The idea, it's very, it's a very kind of counterintuitive thing, the idea of medical staff of any kind striking. And I'm sure nurses are feel very much feel that themselves. So I hope it can be avoided. It looks like it maybe won't be. And it also looks like it might drag on for months and months and months. Um, it's a really kind of bad state of affairs. But also I think the NHS beloved as it is is quite broken and that this is only one manifestation of that that you know something needs to shift I'm not quite sure what but something needs to happen to the whole kind of structure of it um otherwise I think things like this are just going to carry on happening for the foreseeable uh, yeah, it's, it is difficult, isn't it, James? Because on the one hand, you, you can sort of make a case for nurses, but if nurses got a 17% pay rise, then teachers would want the same, yeah. and probably police. And if I, I mean, the, the, so the Times suggested that, uh, or that Steve Barker, the health secretary, says that a 17.6% pay rise would cost £9 billion, which is an enormous amount of money. But also, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, we sort of lose £9 billion down the back of a sofa. Uh, so, you know, it's... That's a, a mere morning's work for Liz Truss. Um, um, so, what do you what do you think about this? Should they get the pay rise, or um, should they should they be allowed to strike? Yeah, it's, it's such a tough one. Um, I think I feel a kind of natural sympathy leaning towards nurses when I think about you know all our clap for carer stuff, all those very pious things that we said about how marvelous it was that you know they were they were they were you know coming to the nation's rescue during COVID, and then. They keep having pay, you know, real term pay cuts year after year. It just, I find that I find that very. It sits slightly uneasily with me, more than slightly uneasily. And, you know, it's the first time nurses have ever voted to strike, and I think you have to feel that this wouldn't happen without a very good reason, and these people, you know, and very strongly assume it's not a decision they're taking lightly. I also think there's an argument to be made that, you know. Yes, obviously, I mean, tragically, I'm sure a nurse's strike will cause a lot of disruption and a lot of difficulty in the the NHS. I also wonder if we have fully contemplated the effects of not paying nurses particularly well and, you know, the quality of people you might be getting in the profession in the future, um, the ability that people have to do their jobs when, you know, these stories about people using food banks and sleeping in their cars. And you kind of think, is this, you know, paying people so little? Are we getting the best out? Are we getting the best care from people if we're paying them so little? And I think maybe it's a little more kind of complex in those terms as well. It's a good, yeah, it's a good point you make that, that, there's, that, that not giving nurses a pay rise is not, uh, it's not a zero. You know, that's not without consequences. Yeah. Um, I was just looking up actually from the um, uh, the growth plan that we now don't talk about the mini budget. Uh, the um, reversing, so the, the the putting up national insurance, the health and social care levy. By twenty by next year was going to raise seventeen billion a year, so you could give nurses a pay the, the pay wise to ask for and still have some some money left over. But that's been that was reversed yeah. by this trust and now not not brought forward. <laughs> Do you think there's a problem that nurses rather than think, looking at how much they're actually paid and how many more people we need and and comparing it to other jobs because of nurses and their angels and it's Florence Nightingale with an owl in her pocket and all of that? Um, do we let emotion get in the way of what is a a a, a financial decision india or does do you, do you think emotion has to come into it 
I think I think this is the problem with the situation with the NHS. We all love the NHS. We all clapped for carers. We all think nurses are angels and doctors are saints. And they are. All of those things are true. But it's so easy to romanticise that it's very hard to get kind of any kind of emotional distance away from it and to look at it kind of coldly and and ascertain what needs to be done because something needs to happen clearly because it's creaking along it's the system isn't entirely fit for purpose and bits of it keep falling off you know they've got terrible computers and people aren't paid enough and there was a horrible story yesterday in one of the papers about um, a nurse who um, ate patients' leftovers. That was what she ate during her yeah. shifts. So, you know, things aren't working, but it's so hard because exactly for Florence Nightingale with the owl in her pocket, you, you, people's sympathy, it, it's such an emotive thing, the NHS. And I think that doesn't always help when it comes to making sensible decisions about it. Yeah, because, I mean, pr- you know, prison officers aren't paid a huge amount of money, mm. but nobody's, you know... But no, they don't tug at one's heartstrings. So, so even though, you know, there's one job I really, really wouldn't want to do, it's from working in a prison. Um, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about your column today, uh, James. Old people are revolting, is it basically your... Yeah. Yeah, but in a nice yeah. way. They are the new radicals. If you want to stir up trouble, it's the old, older people, not young people. Well, I think it's older people and younger people. The basis of my column was, I, I keep I keep spotting instances of um, sort of old people acting in kind of radical ways or going to protests in a way that I think is a new social phenomenon. Um, so this sort of I first spot I sort of first sort of started thinking about this from um, the Capitol riots, um, yeah. January the sixth riots, and. It was an interesting riot to associate riots and kind of revolutionary sort of things like that with young people, you know, clambering barricades, very live, very fired up students. A lot of those people were in late middle age. The oldest person arrested inside the Capitol building was 80. Um, <laughs> and only last month, another guy was arrested at the Capitol, an eight, another 80 year old with three guns. And I think there's a really interesting phenomenon whereby we used to think of kind of radical politics, radical political action as a young person thing. And I think increasingly, it's, there are old people getting involved too. Uh, the other sort of the other sort of thing that I was talking about was extinction rebellion protests. You know, we kind of think there are you know they're entirely young people. The cameras probably tend to linger on the kind of you know young and attractive extinction rebellion protests. But an awful protesters, an awful lot of old people in those protests too. Um, old, you know, oldest person who's arrested in the UK for an extinction rebellion protest was ninety two, and it was really interesting kind of political change in yeah, old yeah. people who used to think as pro status quo pro-establishment are now much more radical in you know good yeah. and i think also bad ways and one thing that struck me is is it because older people if they're on the house you know they've paid off their mortgage they're sitting on a pot of money they've got the luxury to go out and spend their days gluing themselves to things or being a nuisance or or you know radicalizing whereas actually things are so tough you know you for young people they can't take a day off to go and do that because you know, you're on the treadmill and you've got bills to pay and debt to service and all, and all of that. Do you think th- there's a financial element in this? Yeah, I think there is. I think I think the two things are different. I think the January 6th protesters um, and the Extinction Rebellion people are two separate tribes. I think the Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, Insulate Britain, etc. people are um, kind of 60s and 70s throwbacks, you know, people who've grown up with being very comfortable with the idea of kind of benign-ish protest. I think the um, January the 6th 
lot. I think it's true of Trump supporters generally are um, a really good example of old people being frightened. They're older. They don't understand how the ways in which the world are evolving. They feel completely left behind. They get stupid little soundbitey headlines saying things like you're not allowed to be a woman anymore or, you know, or everybody's trying to make your children gay or, you know, and they're really, really frightened and being frightened makes them angry. They're frightened. They're also bored because, as you say, they're older. They, you know, they might be retired. They don't necessarily have an action-packed day. And also they don't understand (laughs) also they don't understand social media. So they don't understand that they don't understand how easy to manipulate they themselves yes. are. Yeah, they so think they it's all true. Like, yeah. They think it's all true. They believe everything. They treat their uh, phone screen or laptop screen as if it were a printed page in a newspaper, and they don't understand. And you put those three things together, fear, boredom, and a complete lack of understanding, and you get, you know, really... And, of course, those people are very, very... You can kind of make them move en masse as a kind of chunk of crazy people who think mm. that they're being righteous, and then you get into a terrible mess. Yes, yes, as we saw on the Capitol. And I hope, I hope the same thing about happening here. Uh, right, in a moment, I want to ask you about uh, the idea of getting the Prime Minister to take an oath. James, we haven't discussed the fact you almost won an award. Yeah, well, yeah, second place. That's Bloody right. Marina Hyde. Ha- highly commended at the Society of Editors you were, uh, which is which yes. is good. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was up for an award at the London Press Club. In all the other ca- categories, they had a winner and a highly commended. In my category, uh, Paul Brand won. Nobody got highly commended. We weren't. None of us were up, were were even worthy of, of a second place pat on the You're head. You're highly commended to me. I commend you highly. Well, I, I, commend, I, you. I commend you both. But well we all done. commend you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. We've all highly commended each other. Lovely. Uh, right. Uh, let's let's move on now to another story. And this idea of uh, should the prime minister take an oath of office? MPs uh, have to swear in when they become MPs, but they don't have to do anything when they become prime minister. Uh, so we're going to bring in Andrew Blick. He's a professor of politics and history at King's College London who has suggested this. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Uh, explain why you think the prime minister should take an oath of office. The Prime Minister has a uh, very special role in our system. A lot rests on their upholding certain constitutional standards, certain standards of propriety, behaving well themselves and expecting others to do so. As we've seen in recent years, they can't always be relied on to do that. But I think it it would be important. It wouldn't necessarily be the answer to all our problems, but I think it'd be quite important that someone taking up the role for the first time was required to actually say how they would behave, that they would adhere to certain standards and expect others to do so in public when taking up the role. And I think one reason why this would be important was be that, that the public would then have an awareness of what they could expect from the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister would have at least said it publicly. And yeah. if he didn't go on to uh, maintain those standards, there'd be something we could point to. Uh, so let me just quickly read the oath as suggested. I'll ask uh, India and James what they think. It says to to uphold the principle and practices of collective cabinet government, to uphold and respect the conventions and expe- expectations contained in the ministerial code, the cabinet manual, and the seven Nolan principles of public life, to sustain the impartiality of the civil and diplomatic services, the intelligence and security services, and the armed forces, and to have constant regard for the civil service code and the special advisers code, to account personally to Parliament and its select committees for all the above to uphold the, the rule of law in all circumstances. 
India. Is this a good idea? It's quite a good idea on paper. I mean, I understand. I understand the principle and uh, it would be welcome. On the other hand, all of the things are implicit and you would hope that the calibre of person that we got was, you know, didn't have to have those things spelt out to him or her and didn't have to kind of slightly babyishly stand up and say, I promise to do all these things and be good. I think there's also a difficulty. I think the prime minister is answerable. The prime minister is answerable to the electorate. And I'm not entirely easy with the idea of the prime minister being answerable to unelected people, i.e. civil servants. That's interesting. Um, James, what do you think? Because part of me thinks, would if Boris Johnson had read this out when he entered Downing Street, would he have got in the mess that he did? I was literally, I was literally about to say this. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a lovely oath, but yeah, I, if Boris Johnson read that out, would that have stopped him having a party? I just, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not convinced that's the case. I, I also think the other, you know, I think one positive thing about, you know, the kind of we talk about Britain's unwritten constitution is that it's sort of adaptable. And I think often if you start setting things down in writing, as you've seen in America, you know, when you have a written constitution, you sort of lay all kinds of potentially unexpected traps for yourself down the line. You can never you know, the principles that we think are sort of wonderful now, are these going to turn out more complicated than we think in the future? I think there's something to be said for a kind of unwritten, more adaptable, ambient expectation of prime ministers, maybe. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's what... Uh, what do you think, Andrew? We'll come back on that. The idea that actually this wouldn't change anyone's uh, behaviour. We'd like it if prime ministers of the day abided by all those things. But how how confident are you that Boris Johnson would have abided by it if he'd had to say it all out loud at the beginning? Oh, I, I don't think it would turn Boris Johnson into a difficult person, but into a different person, rather. But I think the, the issue here is that having something like this could go towards promoting a culture of greater compliance. And it's more of a long-term project. It would help create a system within which maybe we got more appropriate people into those proper jobs and that from very early on, people were, were, were helped to understand what really the rules were. And, and I think we heard reference to the, uh, the famous unwritten constitutional model of the UK well, and the adaptability. But I think perhaps that model is, has run into difficulties and you can have too much adaptability. And Johnson <laughs> was certainly able to adapt the system in ways which suited him. And maybe it's time to reconsider that. Uh, I would also add that uh, I think it's probably the case that the public aren't necessarily as aware as they sh- should be of what these unwritten rules are. And yeah, maybe that's, that's why you do need to get them written down. And people such as yourselves on this show are doing a good service in promoting it. I work with a, with a, with a charity, the Constitution Society, that, that promotes awareness of constitutional issues. But I think this, this oath could do a service in that regard. But I agree, it wouldn't necessarily solve <laughs> all the problems. And if you get to a point where you've got someone like Johnson in a, in a top job, you've already failed, really. India Knight and James Marrick there. Of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Uh, James on a Thursday, India in The Sunday Times on a Sunday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's our tribute to Sir David Butler. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. 
From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So if, like me, you love election night, if you count down to the exit poll, if you stay up for the swingometer, if you not only know what sophology means, but also love it, then you've got one man to thank. Sir David Butler, who invented them all, who's died this week at the age of 98. So today we will hear from some of the biggest names in political broadcasting, paying tribute to the Sultan of Political Swing. We are the Sultans. We are the Sultans of Swing. Just as soon as we get the first result, I shall tell you what the national outcome would be if the whole country behaves as Cheltenham or Salford or Billericay, whoever reports first, has actually behaved. David invented Swing to explain how he managed with two, three, four results to come up with a forecast of 650 results. I wanted people to understand why we move from one party to another, not just to see it happening, not just like a magician to say, I predict a Tory majority of X or Labour majority of Y or whatever it is. I've got two teenage daughters and my dream is that one day they'll look at a general election and think, oh great, let's get the TV on. And and David helped us think, oh, there's, there's a great night ahead. Well, we heard there from uh, Sir David Butler himself at the Swingometer. Also, Peter Snow, David Dimbleby and Jeremy Vine, they're all coming up. Uh, but first, let's speak to Sir David Butler's friend and biographer, uh, Michael Crick, who joins me. Morning, Michael. Good morning. Uh, now, it's possible that uh, lots of people who even think they're into politics might not necessarily remember or have heard of Sir David. But the impact on his impact on the way we follow, study and understand politics is is hard to sort of sum up, isn't it? It is and it isn't. Uh, I mean, basically, he was the man that invented election science, started it all way back in 1945. And I'm not just talking about in this country, but he was hugely influential in America and Australia and India and all sorts of other places as well. And it was all when he was a student at New College, Oxford. He'd just come back from fighting in the war. Uh, he'd only done half his PPE course. He was at a bit of a loose end. He was normally a big cricket buff and he would get, he'd devour wisdom every summer. But wisdom was pretty thin in 1945. In fact, it may not even have come out. And instead, he devoured the Times Guide to the House of Commons, which is all the results from the 45 election. And amazingly, the Times Guide in those days only put the results as raw figures, you know, uh, 15,602 for Crick and, uh, and 9,401 for Chorley. And he thought, well, what are the percentages? And he got his slide rule out. I don't know how many listeners will remember <laughs> slide rules and worked out the percentage of every candidate in the 1945 election. Uh, and uh, and I've, he's actually got at his, he had at his home in Oxford, the Times Guide that he did this in with all the ink markings. And he then spotted that when the uh, percentage, and he compared this with what had happened in 1935 and 31 and 29, and he noticed that if the percentage went up by sort of 6% in Gravesend, 
it tended to go up by 6% in lots of other places, all the other places as well. And the swing in those days was very, very uniform. And once you've turned election figures into percentages, you've basically got yourself a science. And in due course, it became known as sophology. And, and indeed, it, was, it wasn't David who invented that word, but it was certainly him that promoted it all over the place. It makes it sound very grand, but it was only <laughs> invented in 1949, that word. Uh, and uh, he wrote a piece of The Economist anonymously, and that got him summoned uh, to brief uh, quite a significant political figure on what he'd, what he'd developed. Yeah, I mean, this was in uh, the, the end of 1949, 1950. And he wrote this article uh, expounding what was known as the cube law, which basically says that the number of uh, seats that you get in the House of Commons is cubically related uh, to the number of votes you got at the general election. And uh, he got a message uh, from uh, from the Conservative Party headquarters saying, uh, could you go down tonight uh, to see uh, Mr. Churchill in Chartwell, his home in Chartwell? And uh, this is a stand. He was only 25. He was helping out <laughs> on the BBC election programme, um, which they were preparing for the 1950, February 1950 general election. And uh, in the middle of an election campaign, the leader of the opposition, hoping to return to government, had had had, had a whole evening to invite David Butler down to Chartwell to explain uh, the latest uh, cephalogical thinking. And so Butler got on the train and he they were de- they were there together for most of the evening. And after a few minutes, Churchill got bored about the cube <laughs> law. He didn't understand it anyway. And it's pretty complicated to explain. And and Churchill just expounded on his theories of government and how what he'd done in life and his and the whole of his uh, philosophy. And David had to be very careful not to drink too much because he wanted to remember it all. And uh, in the end, Churchill, they, they put him up overnight at Chartwell and he had a room up in the attic, I think, after about five hours. <laughs> And um, and he quickly wrote down everything that he could possibly remember. And, he, you know, he still got he still had that. He kept the notes. And uh, but it's astonishing to think that this was sort of 12 days before the general election of 1950. The leader of the opposition <laughs> had time to do this. But in those days, people like Churchill, all they did was go around and make a half a dozen speeches. Yeah. And that was their election campaign. It wasn't well, it wasn't like today where every minute is filled. And let's talk about the swingometer. Um, yeah. Describe how how it came about. Was it literally a nail and a piece of wood in his shed? Where where how who was well, the swingometer invented? Very quickly. In fact, in 1950, David he was still only 25. Remember, uh, in 1950, it was the first ever television results program on the BBC. Uh, it was only two or three hours long. It wasn't like sort, sort of a you know a 24 hour thing like today. And um, he, he was actually uh, t- taken along with another academic. He was a bit nervous about appearing on this new thing, television. And in the end, David did, did, did most of the contributions in the studio. There, there was hardly any audience, you know, just a few thousand people in, in those days. And after that, David got hooked on television. Uh, he, he, saw, he knew it was the future. And he bombarded Grace Wyndham Goldie and other producers at the BBC. She was a legendary figure with ideas for how the next tele- the, the next election results programme should go. And after that, you know, how the arrangement of the studio and who should sit where and all <laughs> sorts of things. I mean, he was essentially a television producer at heart and a journalist. And one of the ideas, he wrote a letter and I found it, uh, or rather, to be fair, my former wife, Margaret, who was doing research for me, found it in the BBC archives from about March 1955. And uh, he writes this letter, 10-page letter. And one of the ideas in the letter uh, is 
what he calls, I think, a, a speedometer type device. <laughs> and he actually drew a picture of a, a sort of dial. And then this, uh, you know, with the, with the gradations and uh, a, a, a moving hand and how it would uh, the the uh, on this speedometer type device, uh, the number of seats, the number of votes that each party got between Conservatives and Labour would then be related to the number of seats and you'd be able to see which seats they'd won. And and it, it took a while to catch on. I mean, the first one was only a little one, sort of that high, you know, a, a sort of bit like a, a sextant or a, a metronome. And it was actually used on the desk and it was only used, I think, in, in one of the BBC uh, regions. Um, whereas subsequently uh, there was a big one, you know, man, uh, man size uh, swing where, where the uh, presenter stood up. But David actually very rarely used the swingometer. It was mainly um, his uh, colleague, Bob McKenzie. Yeah. Um, and in later years, he always said to me, oh, no, I don't think I invented the swingometer. And then we found this letter. And it turned out, <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> you, you did invent it. You're being far too modest. And uh, and it's been used ever since. I mean, now it's a sort of in electronic form. They've got I've got a much more elaborate one that they have in Australia uh, because the electoral system there is a lot more complicated. Uh, but that is one of his many uh, legacies. I mean, another important one, you know, was, up and, believe it or not, up until 1958, the television, television and radio were not allowed to cover election campaigns, the hurly-burly of an election campaign, because all the politicians feared that broadcasters would be biased one way or another. And this was ridiculous. So in an election campaign, it was announced that the, the prime minister's gone to the palace to call an election, uh, to get an election. And then the next thing was on the news was the result. So you had all these weeks in between when no news on the BBC yeah. uh, of the election. And David Butler and everybody else, of course, thought this was bonkers. And he convened uh, a, a conference at Nuffield College in January 1958. And he had their the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, De, uh, Rab Butler, who is uh, a cousin of David's, <laughs> a second cousin. He had Tony Benn there, who was uh, Labour's chief broadcasting person, who happened to be his best friend from uh, from uh, New College. Um, and he had uh, Joe Grimman from the Liberal Democrats. And he had broadcasters there from BBC yeah. and ITV. And they all agreed this was bonkers and this rule had to go. And it did go. And from 1959 onwards, onwards or one or two by-elections before, they got proper television coverage as we know it. So so that you can attribute to David as well, I think. Michael, it's extraordinary. You're, thank you so much for joining us. Michael Michael Crick there, friend and biographer of Sir David Butler. As we were discussing there, uh, um, well, uh, he invented the swing on. So in a moment, we're going to hear from a man who had many a late night with David Butler, as did his father. David Dimbleby will pay his tribute. But first, let's focus in particular on this business of the swingometer. And the Sultans. Yeah, the Sultans. Well, the beginning of the night was all over the place. One or two the other way made us think we might hesitate. But after 30 results, it settled down, and it has been staying steady now. The average swing over the whole country, 1.3% improvement of Conservative position over Labour. Well, let me uh, introduce our new BBC swingometer for the 90s. First of all, the two arrows. Now, can I have the pendulum, please? Here it comes. Thank you very much, Harry. That's it. There's our new pendulum. So, to explain, here is our Conservative Labour swingometer. If just five voters per 100 shift from Labour to the Conservatives since 2010, that's a 5% swing against Labour. That's how it works. That was first David Butler at the swingometer in 1959. Peter Snow took over in 1983 before handing the baton and the increasingly baffling graphics in 2006 to Jeremy Vine. 
the absolute seminal moment in the modern age of the swing armature was Peter in 97, said that Peter Snow's exploding buildings. And I remember saying to them, can we can we not do exploding buildings? You know, and uh, they said, oh, God, no, we can't do that anymore. It's, you know, it's you can't these days post 9-11, you can't have any buildings exploding. I was like, oh, OK, right. We're a bit limited then, aren't we? But, you know, the funny thing is all of those graphics. Yeah, all of those graphics go back to David. That's the key thing, Peter, isn't it, really? Peter, just explain your what the exploding uh, thing that exploded, why you had exploding buildings in 1997. Exploded buildings were, were, were exploding constituencies. I mean, they were just people being beaten by the other guy. And so his house, his or her house, exploded. The first one we're going for is Plymouth Sutton, then Exeter, you can see just beyond it there. There goes Exeter. Here comes Portsmouth North, the most difficult of those targets to hit. David invented swing to explain how he managed with two, three, four results to come up with a forecast of 650 results. That was the extraordinary thing. And the, the technique he had was to work out the plus, Tories plus so-and-so, Labour minus so-and-so, that was a swing of so-and-so. And that word, that single measure of swing allowed him to forecast all the seats. Uh, no, I think on graphics, Jeremy has invented magnificent graphics, and so did I. We had enormous fun with the graphics. I don't think David was that keen on it. I think David was, was much more nerdish even than Jeremy. I mean, he was, he was deep into David, but not having graphics so much. I suppose what I mean by that, is, sorry, Matt, is that I feel that he caught on to the idea that this very complicated story needed simple visual representation that's all i really mean and that some and then and so the graphics all came out of that but what's so interesting matt is this as peter says the idea of swing and back in the day amazingly i think it was gravesend he focused on you take one seat you look at the swing in that one seat you paint it across the country and you get the result now the problem is we couldn't at a certain point, that didn't work anymore. And that's what's really interesting about the swing armature. It, it had to change. Peter, when you were doing it, how much were you being given information about what was happening and swing and all of that? And how much were you having to sort of work all that out? Well, the wonderful thing about, and Jeremy, I'm sure will agree with this, the wonderful thing about the graphics is that they're all sort of pushed by some machine behind the stage. So what I would simply do is say, let's have a look at the swing, not knowing what it is. The swing. And I would say, oh, look at that. And I remember the Dudley West by-election, it was a record swing, 29% to Labour. John Major, total chaos in 1994. It was the sort of beginning of Tony Blair's great surge. And I pressed the button and it stuck. It couldn't, couldn't, make, couldn't make 29%. It was too much for it. And so uh, the, the whole screen went sort of blank and I had a terrible time. So you, do, you don't know the great, wonderfully exciting things. Well, it's the best job in television. I'm sure Jeremy will agree with you. You don't know what that picture is going to show next time you press the button. It's a complete surprise. Yeah, I had one in, in Scotland. And this was this was interesting where 2015, of course, I think that, you know, the Scottish vote in a way was a consolation for the SNP for the, the loss of the, the referendum on independence. And it just went through the ceiling. And again, it broke the swingometer. But of course, that's also hugely dramatic. And the, the, the incident that Peter referred to at the start was 1970. Edward Heath was, was campaigning to be elected. He won election. And I, I seem to remember, we've got a photo, Peter, of a man having to come in and paint extra numbers on that's, that, You see him doing it. There he is. Well, He's it's rather like to painting paint the, the Sistine Chapel here. We're bringing the swingometer up to date to make room for the kind of swing. In those days, there was it wasn't done <laughs> digitally in any way whatsoever. And actually, Jeremy, I was watching a clip of you, I think it was from 2015, where you had 
sort of four swingometers trying to take into account Labour, Tory, Lib Dem, SNP, because those seats, you know, actually the swingometer probably only really works now, maybe England and Wales. Once you start bringing into Scotland and there's the Red Wall, which is different to the southwest, and suddenly it's not quite so uniform. But then, and of course, one of the things that I've learned doing the graphics, and I should have, I should have just gone to Peter about this originally, he would have told me, is that you don't make complicated things simple by explaining them. You make them more complicated. So this is the fundamental misunderstanding, is that we take this massively complex story and we explain it, it becomes simple. It doesn't. It's, it's that what happens is we understand the complexities of it. And once you break down, region, we've done regional swingometers, it's a very long way away from the beauty of, of the cardboard thing on a nail. And I, we've said every time we do a general election now, I say, look, let's bring back this. Let's have the bloody thing made of wood again as a tribute to David, because in the end, that's the joy of it. Let's keep it as simple as we can. A piece of wood on a nail. David Dimbleby, bless his cotton socks. Every every time I produced a new graphic, you know, sort of, we had a land, wonderful, wonderful graphic. It was a landslide result. And the landslide would be a great heap of earth, which would sort of collapse into the screen. It's great fun. And out of it would come all the sort of surviving MPs. And David Dimbleby would say, Peter, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so I would say, well, David, well to see if I can fix it. So I would sort of tell them. He did that to you as well. <laughs> just finally, then, both of you, just uh, briefly, just sum up how you think David Butler will be remembered, Peter. First of all, oh, as an absolute genius. I mean, he was the sort of he was he was the the sort of the the, the grand vizier of, uh, of 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 swing, and he invented the word psephology. I think psephos being a pebble, the Greeks used to chuck in a pot when they were voting, and uh, he was absolutely extraordinary with the figures. And and, and the great thing about David was uh, he invented this concept whereby you could forecast what would happen in all the seats by knowing the result in just one. Extraordinary. And Jeremy Vine, your, your memory of David Butler. I mean, he came in, I think, into the 2015 election studio and he looked, at it, he tried to disguise his sort of feeling of being, I think, quite appalled by the whole, you know, snazzery of the, the graphics now. He just said, I'd far rather it when it was made of cardboard. And he was right. How will I remember him? I, I tell you what, I'll give you a personal memory. As well as being a brilliant academic who gave us an amazing thing about broadcasting, he was a father of a person who was one of my BBC friends who I worked with a lot called Gareth Butler. And Gareth was born in the same month of the same year as me. And he died at the age of 42. And I think we, we forget sometimes when we remember somebody's life that I'm sure that was bigger for him than, than all of the polling he ever did. But I think he's someone who took joy from elections. And as I've got two teenage daughters... And my dream is that one day they'll look at a general election and think, oh, great, let's get the TV on. And David helped us think, oh, there's a great night ahead. And that's the excitement. And bless him, my hero, Peter Snow. I've always thought enthusiasm and expertise are the two key qualities that Peter has, and David had them too. Well, blimey, we serve you, old chap. We serve you, Jeremy. Enthusiasm. No, I'm I'm just (laughs) catching a few sparks from the master's wheel. Uh, That was Jeremy Vine and Peter Snow there. What, well, what a lot of fun that was. Heirs to the swingometer from its inventor, uh, Sir David Butler, who's died at the age of 98. We are remembering Sir David Butler, the inventor of the swingometer, and much else besides, who changed the way we think about elections. He died this week at the age of 98. He first wrote about the 1945 general election. and was a key part in the evolution of TV coverage of elections alongside the broadcasting titan that was Richard Dimbleby. And then in 1979, his son, David Dimbleby was alongside David Butler trying to make sense of the results as Margaret Thatcher sought her first victory. 
Well, it's amazing, really. I've, I've not sat in this chair before, but by quarter to one in the morning, David, you would normally be... Oh, we'd be quite clear. We'd be giving you a very firm prediction of mm. the exact numbers. And we just have had so few seats, and such as we've heard, for, uh, which are ones of good indicators, and such as we've heard from have been giving a fairly diverse story. The more uneven the swing, the longer one has to wait to give a confident prediction. So I was back from 1979. So I caught up with David Dimbleby and asked him about covering elections with David Butler. There were long nights, uh, but he taught me a great deal about politics because he's remembered as the kind of king of swing, but actually his passion was the democratic political process and how it worked, how people changed their votes and why and all that kind of thing. And he was always, he was a very good teacher. So I came in as a complete ingenue in the election in 1979, and he really taught me what I knew about elections and how the concept of swing worked and why it was interesting. And he was always keen to explain and to listen to any you know, objections you had to what he was saying and all that. He was, a, he was a proper teacher. And, of course, he did these wonderful, after each election, these great volumes about the election and how they'd panned out and why. Uh, that, and he did it just for British elections, but remember, he travelled all around the world doing elections as well. You know, the Indian elections, he was there explaining it. The Australian elections, the American elections. He was just fascinated by the democratic process and why people changed their minds and how that affected the government that was coming in. And it's not just the swingometer. The very idea of the BBC, as it was the only channel then, covering elections, results and campaigns, sort of came from him as well. And, you know, before you, your father, Richard Dimbleby, you know, we wouldn't have what we now see as a sort of, well, we can't have an election without election night and uh, and all of that, all of that sort of flowed from David Butler wanting to engage people in the political process. I remember the very first election he did for the BBC. There wasn't a swingometer. Um, he had a slide rule, and he'd. My father turned to him and said, "He called him Butler. Not that was a, a very old-fashioned way of doing it." <laughs> well, Butler, what do you make of this? And you know, expect the Butler to come in with a tray of champagne, but it was David Butler on the end. Well, Butler, what do you make of this? And. David just pulled out his sphingometer and would say, well, if the country votes the same way as Sunderland has, the result will be so-and-so, you know. And it was a kind of magic because nobody knew what on earth he was talking about or how he had discovered this. So he was like a sort of magician from the beginning, really. And then we got the concept of the swing and all that. And then he was passionate about it. I mean, I remember one election, not that I was presenting, my father was presenting it. So it must have been in the, in the early 60s or late 50s. And he came back one evening and he said, I really cannot stand it any longer. The rows between Bob McKenzie, who was the Canadian political expert, and David Butler, they just go on and on and on. It's driving me completely mad. I had to walk out and say, you sort it out. I can't stand this any longer. So he was very passionate intellectually, you know, about, about what he was doing. And he didn't suffer fools. It was a science. It wasn't, it wasn't an art he was doing. He was, he was producing a science in order to engage people. Otherwise, you just have this disparate collection of numbers coming in from different parts of the country. And what does it all mean? And actually boiling it down and then turning it into a sort of spectator sport. I suppose that's the thing. You know, it's, it's the reason that I'm weirdly, nerdly, over-enthusiastic about politics. is because of being able to read things into it. And, and it's, it's not just gut and what I feel about politics or what I might want to happen. It's treating it as a... I'm not really into football or cricket. It's, this is my 
sport, if you like. And that it's all thanks to you know David's passion, really, that it's fed fed, fed through the years. He had a sort of insight into the psychology of the electorate, I suppose that's what it is. And all this business about the cleverness of swing and his ability to tell from a very safe seat, you know, which wasn't going to change hands, how the election would pan out because in that safe seat there'd been this shift of opinion between the two parties. All of that was the story that he wanted to tell. He wanted people to understand why we move from one party to another, not just to see it happening, not just like a magician to say, I predict a Tory majority of X or a Labour majority of Y or whatever it is. He, he wanted them to understand what it was that was happening. So, David, just finally then, your, your abiding memory and, and tribute to David Butler. I think the, the, the abiding memory I have of David, though, is the generosity with which he would talk to anybody who asked him questions about election, whether it was in the studio, whether it was Nuffield College with his students, where he used to have senior politicians come and let their hair down about how politics worked. I mean, he was really fascinated by politics and uh, until his dying day wanted people to understand what it was that was going on because he thought that that was what democracy was about. David Dimbleby there. So what does the future of sophology hold in store? Let's speak to Jane Green, the Professor of Political Science and British Politics at Nuffield College, which is, of course, the home of uh, David Butler too. Uh, she's also the Director of the British Election Study. Uh, Jane, first of all, your your personal memories of David, learning from the, the almost the godfather of politics as we know it. Yeah, exactly. So I, I knew David for over 20 years. He was brilliant. He remembered everything. He was interested in elections all over the world. He was the first person to introduce us to the idea, not just of an election study, but also of the idea of following the same people within the study over two elections. So you could look at switching. These were huge innovations. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Is it so much of, yeah. of what we now think is being routine? Like you said, following the same people. So much of it was, was what he started doing. Where are we now in terms of the, the sort of state of sophology right now? What's the, what's the stuff which is exciting uh, you and, w- and would have been exciting hmm. David in terms of a sort of the future of where all this goes? David was writing back in the early 60s in his first book about you know, about volatility, about partisanship, about parental socialization, you know, kind of very theoretical ideas. And one of the things that I'm particularly excited we're working on at Nuffield College at the moment is understanding and asking questions about people in relation to other family members. So, you know, if you think that your children are suffering financially, and we know that there's a big kind of generational gap in wealth now that younger generations are struggling in a way that older generations didn't have to in terms of home ownership and asset ownership and things like that. You know, if we, if we go and expand the questions, we're still expanding the questions that we ask. So we're asking about children. We're asking about parents and grandparents. And do you feel like you're going to need to support them? Do you feel like you're going to have to support children who are younger, um, younger generations, older generations? You know, these are kind of new, new ways of thinking about electoral behavior. That was Professor Jane Green rounding off our uh, tribute to uh, Sir David Butler. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box podcast. Do get in touch with your thoughts on the episode. Find us on Twitter at Times Red Box or post a comment on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. 
And don't forget, you can listen to me live on Times Radio. Now, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, smart speaker, online at times.radio, or get the Times Radio app, where you can listen to Times Radio live and all of the Times and the Sunday Times podcast, including, of course, your favourite Times Red box. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.